So I have this theory. I have a theory that a lot of the psychological hacks that people try to find in this world, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them have a much greater spiritual component to them. A very easy illustration or connection of this is meditation. So if meditation makes a difference in the lives of unbelievers, if quieting themselves and trying to focus on one thing or emptying their minds, whatever people try to do in that moment, if that can have efficacy, if that can have success, then my thought is, how much greater is prayer? How much greater is it to meet with the one that restores your soul? Infinitely, right? It's so much greater. There's another concept that I came across recently that I feel like has a spiritual component to it, and it's grounding. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the concept of grounding before. Basically what it is, is when you're beginning to feel overwhelmed or anxious or depressed or any sort of negative feeling, if it's coming on too strongly, then you ground yourself back in reality. And you do this by using your senses. Okay, what can you, what can you see? I can see some flowers, I can see the cross, it's always good to focus on the cross. I can see people and a camera. Uh, those things typically don't make people feel better, actually. Uh, now that I'm thinking about talking in front of a whole bunch of people on a camera, it doesn't make people feel more calm. But you get the picture. What can you hear? Well, I can hear a fan or maybe the keyboard. Uh, I can hear someone sniffle. You can hear different things. It can smell, typically you'd be able to smell the flowers, different smells. What can you taste? What can you touch? You can feel the wood, it's a little coarse. And doing this grounds you back into reality and it's supposed to give you some sort of a sense of normalcy and the bigger picture of things and calm you down a little bit. Fair enough. But to me, this big, brings up a bigger question. And that question is, what is your sense of security and consistency? We're going we're to kind of challenge that a little bit. What is it? For a lot of people, it's uh, a job. Or if you're retired, perhaps you're RRSPs. But what happens if you lose your job? What happens if the job that you're hoping for doesn't come what happens when, when things get turned upside down? What happens to your security? What happens to your sense of consistency and normalcy? For a lot of us here in Canada, by the way, we are very blessed to live in Canada where there are almost, there are very few natural disasters and there are few animals that can kill us here. It's pretty rare, right? We don't fear for those things on a consistent basis. What about the weather? We pretty much, we're, we're pretty confident, hey, we're not too close to an ocean and we don't really have to deal with hurricanes that often, except that one year ago today, it was actually today, a year ago, we had that crazy storm. And then, where did our sense of normalcy go? Where did our sense of consistency and security go? Uh, for my wife, that comes from coffee. A lot of it comes from coffee. And when that storm hit, we, now all of a sudden we don't have water. 
We don't have electricity. We couldn't even grind our coffee beans because we buy fancy coffee, so we couldn't even grind it. So Chantel wakes up early and starts driving all around Lakefield and Peterborough trying to find a Tim Hortons that's open because she just needed that coffee. And she couldn't. So what does she do? She gets bottles of water and puts them in a, a, what do you just call those things, pans? She puts them in a pan and puts it on the barbecue because we don't have electricity. So what do you do? And then we can't grind our coffee beans, so she puts a bunch of coffee beans in a Ziploc bag and starts giving it the old rolling pin. You get desperate for these things. We couldn't flush the toilet. So what do you, we had to go to the hot tub. And we, we start scooping buckets out of the hot tub so we can flush the toilet. Like, this isn't, no, I mean, this isn't normal for us. Where did our sense of security go in this? Where is our sense of consistency? Health is another thing that we can depend on. I'm, for a lot of people, I'm known as the healthy guy. Uh, I was, someone said to me the other day when they found out that I was 36, they're like, oh, that's my ideal age. I'll tell you this, 36 has not been ideal for me. I have spent the entire 36th year of my life injured. It started off with a shoulder injury that happened two days before my birthday. Uh, a couple days after my birthday on a dirt bike race, I had a concussion. A couple weeks after that, I did a 100-kilometer run in three days, and it just ruined my Achilles tendon, my knees, my hips. I was limping for about two months. <laughs> then in November, I had a back injury, and now that that's starting to get kind of better, I have a lot of nerve pain in my leg. Where's my sense of security with my health? Like, I haven't had it this year. And, you know, that said, I understand that there are people in this congregation and people watching online that have had much more significant illness and injury come across their way than that. And, and my point is, what happens when that gets taken away from you? And then, of course, there's the big one that we all had to face over the past three years, Right. When, when COVID hit and everything that we thought we knew got flipped upside down, where is our security and consistency in all of this? And so, Father God, what else could we do in this time but to turn to you? God, again, we turn to you because there is no other. God, I ask that you use me this morning to speak your truth. God, I pray that all of us can be receptive to hear from you. How is it that you give? Who is it that you are? God, we pray all this in your name. Amen. We are in a series on James, and we're calling this series, A Faith That Works. That's good, eh? A Faith That Works. We want to have a faith that works. Brent introduced the series a couple weeks ago, and he touched on something that I want to highlight again now, and that is that James was very smart. Like, he wasn't just a little bit smart. He was very, very smart. You can see this as you're reading this book of James, that he is extremely logical, and the way that he thinks is remarkable. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because there are people that think that faith and reason 
don't go together. Either you have faith or you have reason. What I have found is that faith and reason actually marry very well. And that what we have now is a reasonable faith. James wants us to acknowledge that we have a faith that works. And that's why last week, and immediately in the book, as soon as he could talk about one of the big objections to the faith, he does. And he starts off by saying in verse 2, by the way, we're going to be in the book of James, so if you haven't yet, I encourage you to turn there. So James 1, and if you have a pew Bible, that's on page 977. So in In James 1, starting in verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We talked about how James believed that the trials that come across our life, in our path, they're intended to bring a richness to our character, and a strength to our faith if, and there is a big if there, we can respond to them properly. We have to face them head on and embrace them and even consider it pure joy. And that can be a very difficult thing to do. But it's about mindset. It's about setting our mind on what God is doing and how this can benefit us in the long run. Now, as we head into verses 5 through 8, I want to say that I was surprised at what I found when I read this. When we read these set of verses, the first thing that comes to mind is wisdom. And so we even named the sermon Simple Wisdom in accordance with that. But that's not where I see the greatest value in this text. There is value in wisdom, so we're going to be talking about wisdom. But I think there's a much more important lesson that we can learn in the character and nature of God in terms of our consistency and security that we found. So we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about wisdom, but I really want to spend the bulk of our time talking about who God is and what we can glean from this text. So today's text then. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do." There is a transitional phrase that isn't even mentioned in the NIV. In other versions, it is mentioned, but it's this very simple word, duh. It's the Greek word, duh, and it means but. What this indicates, and anytime you see this in the Bible, it's really good to pay attention because it indicates that there is a connection and a progression. So the phrase that we're... The, thought that we're heading into is connected to what we just said. So what we were talking about is being perfected by trials. That's what James means when he's talking about that you're made complete, is that you're made perfected. So the way that James connects this is to say that the desired perfection that comes from trials 
can only be had if wisdom is present and wisdom is available for the asking. James wants us to understand that there is something very important to achieve this completion and this perfection, and that is wisdom. It's discernment. It is recognizing early on what is happening and setting your eyes and your mind on the right place because if you can do that and if you can be discerning, your experience of the process of going through trials is going to be very different. If you can focus on what God is doing and how you can grow in the process of trials, wisdom is required to be present. So then in these verses here, James wants us to understand that we can pray with undivided faith for the wisdom that a gracious God is eager to give us. We can pray for wisdom, but we can't be divided about it. We're not to be of two minds about how we ask and how we receive from the Lord. So we're going to start off by talking about wisdom in this context. And I think it's important to define the term wisdom. I'm a fairly simple guy. I would define wisdom as making good decisions. That's pretty basic. It's defined differently in the media a little bit. Uh, anyone here watch The Office? Okay, we got, we got like three... Downton Abbey, I gotta find references that you guys connect with. Downton Abbey, like what? Okay, we got Downton Abbey from England, okay. All right, we got, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. I'll learn you guys as, as the years go on. But so Michael is the boss, and he asks Dwight, who is assistant to the regional manager, what is the wisest thing I've ever said to you? And Dwight responds, don't be an idiot. It changed my life. And then there's a cutscene to Dwight talking directly to the camera, and he says, Every time I'm about to do something, I ask myself, would an idiot do this? And if the answer is yes, I don't do that thing. It's, it's very simple advice. It's actually pretty helpful. If, if we were to do that with ourselves, we'd probably be in a lot better situation in life. Uh, it, it's a little too simplistic. Even Andy Stanley, he likes to ask the question, is it wise? Is this something a wise person would do? So basically what he's saying is let's make good decisions. But how? What does that mean? What does that look like? So Douglas Moo defines and summarizes the book of Proverbs to say that it is finding life and receiving favor. Does that strike anyone else as kind of odd? I thought that was a very simple, almost too simple of a summary of an entire book of, book of the Bible, finding life and receiving favor. So I'd love for you to think about this. I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this myself. Finding favor might be easiest to start with. Finding favor with God. So wisdom is proved right by her children. What that means is the actions that we do prove whether or not that was a wise decision. So if our actions 
lead us, cause us to live in a way that finds favor with God, then that is wise. So living in a way that receives favor from God is how the book of Proverbs defines it. And the book of Proverbs gives you many really great examples on how to live to find favor with God. And then the other one is finding life. Now, this one is interesting as well. And and my take on it is that when we find life, we're finding life for ourselves, but also creating life-giving situations and saying and doing life-giving things for the people around us. And it's both and. The focus isn't meant to be on ourselves. The focus is meant to be on other people. But when we do that, it is life-giving for them and life-giving for us. And that is how we live wisely. It's finding life and receiving favor. We're going to turn, in a second, we're going to turn to Matthew 7, which is on page 788, just giving you guys a transition warning. So the Old Testament would not have been James's only source of wisdom that he had. He also had a brother, a half-brother, who was the wisest person to have ever lived, that being Jesus. And so he took a lot of the things that Jesus said as well. And so we're going to look at Matthew 7, and starting in verse 7. Now, this has to do with wisdom, but I think even more so, it has to do with God. It has to do with understanding who God is and how God gives. So Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. To the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your Father in heaven give give good gifts to those who ask him? And so the parallel in verse uh, 5 is, if any of you ask wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously, verse 5 of James 1, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James wants us to understand the way that God gives. The word that James used there is often translated generously. It's the Greek word haplos. It's only used once in the entire Bible. And so they really wanted to explore this word haplos. Is it it single translation or does it have many different words? It turns out we need to use many different words to actually properly understand what James means when he says, generously in this case. Because we need to understand how it is that God gives. He gives generously. That's great and that's really important to understand. But that word could also be defined as simple. And that's why the sermon is called Simple Wisdom. is because God gives simply. It doesn't have to be complicated or extravagant. It can just be simple in the way that he gives. Another way is sincere. Now, I don't know if you know where the word sincere comes from. It's actually really important to understand. 
it, ha- it comes from back when people would do marble statues. They would be making marble statues, and perhaps if they're not quite as skilled as other people, there would be some cracks, there'd be some mistakes, there would be, over time, it would just settle through and imperfections would arise. So what artists would do is that they would use wax and they would cover up the imperfections on the marble with wax. And so people weren't getting a genuine product, but then there were other artists, more skilled artists, who wouldn't be making those mistakes and who knew how to treat the marble properly. And so they would have these beautiful marble sculptures without imperfections, and they would advertise it as being sincere, meaning without wax. God isn't mixing things together. It's not of two minds. It's not of two ways. It is sincere. It is authentic. God does with integrity. It Basically, all this is to say that it is of singleness of intent. That is the way that God gives. He doesn't give the way that the world gives. It is with singleness of intent. And also in verse 5, it says, God gives generously to all without finding fault. The picture here is of God giving with one eye closed. He's closing one of his eyes to our faults because we have a generous God that wants to give good gifts to his children, and it's not, and it can't be about deserving. We can't necessarily deserve it. So he gives because he knows that we need it. We need wisdom from God, but we just need to receive from God. And he wants to give, regardless of whether or not we feel like we deserve it. Moving on, it's interesting to realize that this is written in the context of wisdom, right? Verse 5 starts with wisdom, but wisdom isn't mentioned again in the next few verses. So I think this is intended to be a both and. It's wisdom, sure, but it's a lot about prayer. But even more than that, it's about understanding the heart of the Father. It's about understanding our security. It's about understanding our sense of consistency and where that comes from. Verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I said I believe that it was intended to be a both and with prayer. In terms of understanding the heart of God asking for wisdom, that these verses can be a both and with that. Well, it is not a both and with receiving from the Lord. It is absolutely either or. We make a big fuss about God giving with singleness of intent. We are to receive in the same way. God doesn't give the way that the world gives, and we don't receive the way that the world receives. It is not both and. We don't receive the wisdom from the world and the wisdom of God. We, don't, we can't have our confidence in this, that, and the other thing. We 
first and foremost have to have our confidence found in God and trusting that he is going to give in the way that only he can. He's going to deliver in only the way that he can. So what, what does this look like? This looks like one of two different things that either looks like doubt or it looks like hope. It looks like faith. And so we see that. We see doubt in this very easily. Right? It's like when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. The doubt that he's talking about here is a very strong sort of doubting. It's significantly doubting and it's intended to be the opposite of faith. To James, the opposite of faith here is not unbelief. It's actually doubt. It's doubting that God can give. And we can't receive when we're doubting that God would give. The, the picture that he uses there is of waves. When we picture this, maybe we're, we're picturing a ship being blown all over the place in, a, in an ocean or a sea because of the waves and the strength of the waves and and maybe we can even connect that to trials, but that's actually not the picture that James is trying to paint here. The picture that he's trying to paint is of a lack of consistency. If you watch the same bit of ocean or sea for, the same, uh, for any duration of time, you will see that it is constantly changing. It is constantly in flux. So Remember, this is the way that we are not to be. This is the way that we are not to pray. It varies in direction. It varies in intensity. It doesn't really have any consistency to it. This is the way that we are not to be. This is the picture of someone who is doubting. It's always varying in intensity, varying in direction, varying in where you're receiving from. And this is what James warns us against. If we're talking about grounding and grounding ourselves in some sort of reality, we have to ask, if we are out at sea, how is it that you ground yourself? It's with an anchor. And I love the picture that's painted in Hebrews 6, especially Hebrews 6.19, it's in the context of hope, and it's talking about having an anchor to the soul. We are grounding ourselves in the hope that we find in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we can ground ourselves in that, not looking at our situations, not looking to our health or our careers or whether or not we had coffee this morning, but when we can ground ourselves in what Christ has done and in who he is and how he gives, we can experience and live into that hope and we don't need to be afraid because he doesn't give how the world gives, and we don't receive how the world receives. We have an anchor for our souls. James goes on to say that that person, and it's actually meant to be a derogatory term, it's like, well, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. 
again, you can see why we made such a big deal of the word haplos earlier. Because if God is of singleness of intent, if he is without wax in the way that he gives, in the way that he is, that is what he requires of us as well. It is to be of singleness of intent, of grounding ourselves and securing ourselves in the promises that he has made to us. The Bible is full of really great promises that God has made to us. And if we can ground ourselves and secure ourselves in that and only that without wax, we will see greater things in our lives. In Hebrews 6, the example that they use, and I think this is such a great example of hope. The example that's used in Hebrews 6 and many other times in the New Testament is that of Abraham. Abraham hoped against hope. He had trust in God when all of his circumstances looked absolutely bleak. God gave him a promise that he would be the father of great multitudes. And you've got to understand, he was about 100 years old. His wife was around 90. Looking at that, without having any children, you would say that's a bad situation. You would say that there's not a lot of hope in that. Adding to that, his wife has been barren for her entire life, never able to have children. But Abraham hoped against hope, and he didn't waver in his hope. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have moments where he didn't believe it would happen, but he kept with singleness of intent. He kept with integrity to focus on the promise that God had made him, and he chose not to waver. God is looking for men and women who can be be determinately focused on what he has called them to, to not look to the left or to the right to receive their sense of security or normalcy or consistency, but to understand that it is found in him, it is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In our own lives, that looks like not giving up. It looks like believing that if it's not good, that it's not done, that God has more for you, and that God has better for you. It's believing that God is good. It is understanding that God doesn't give the way the world gives, and that we don't receive the way the world receives. That God's ways are higher, and what he calls us to is oftentimes harder, but it's always better. So, Father God, we thank you for who you are. God, you are a good God and you give good gifts. God, we we turn to you. We ask you to Speak to people's hearts, even in this moment. Just remind them once again of who you are. Remind them of your faithfulness. Remind them of your goodness.
Remind them of all the times in our lives where we have been scared, where we've felt insecure, but you didn't let us down. You are a faithful God. You're with us in the trials. God, may we be able to stay, stand, and sing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We thank you, Lord. Amen.